Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Instagram or threads at thecellosherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. If you're looking for a bit of extra help on learning your orchestra or solo repertoire, perhaps we can help. Visit www.thecellosherpa.com and drop us a line. We offer virtual or in-person lessons. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. Today's guest is cellist Justin Goldsmith, who is currently a member of the Euclid Quartet, which is in residence at Indiana University's South Bend. The quartet is celebrating its 26th season. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So sorry to the audience as I get over my case of COVID here. My voice is a little more scratchy than normal, but I really wanted to get this interview in the books and talk about the Euclid Quartet and how you guys are celebrating your 26th season. But you haven't been there for all of those years. So when did you join the quartet? That is true. I'm the newest member of the Euclid Quartet. I joined in September of 2022. Okay. So about a year and a half ago at this point. And we've got quite a range of ages in the group at this point because one of the violinists is still an original member Mm -hmm. from the beginning of the group. And the violist, Luis, he joined the group two years after they formed, I think. Okay. So he's been there also a really long time. And then the other violinist is actually a friend of mine from school. So she joined about a year before I did. Okay. So how did this opportunity come about? I just saw a job posting online. Oh, do they put quartet openings online? (laughs) (laughs) So this particular one, I think, was a little bit different than, you know, just a quartet sort of posting online because it does have the institutional backing of IUSB. So the job posting appeared on higheredjobs.com. Okay. So it was advertised as like that kind of teaching position with quartet responsibilities also attached. Now, being wrapped into a teaching position, was there a requirement to have a certain level of education, master's, doctoral, even before you applied for the quartet position itself? Yes. So master's required, doctorate preferred. I do not have one. Okay. But still wanted to apply. And obviously it worked out. So let's talk about that then. You said that the quartet is sponsored by Indiana University South Bend and has been in residence there since 2007. What exactly is involved with a residency? So quartets can look at a couple of different types of residencies. There's this fellowship or student residency at schools like Curtis, NEC, Juilliard, IU Bloomington has one. And those types of positions are generally two-year positions for a preformed quartet, and they are fully funded, and it's like that pre-professional step yeah. where a young group gets a home base for a little bit to build their profile. Uh-huh. What we're doing is a faculty residency, so that's something like a little bit further down the line for groups that are a little bit more established. And in this particular residency, we are the string faculty at IU South Bend. 
Okay. What else is involved in that? What's your performance schedule like? I assume you're also coaching chamber music. Are you performing outside of the school also going on tours or how does all of that work together? So we go on tour periodically. A lot of our performance activity is in the Michiana area. Okay. A lot of local community-based stuff that we like doing with libraries and, of course, recitals at IUSB and some other stuff within the community. But also we like to get out on the road, especially like over the summer. We have a tour coming up in about a year through California. Okay. So that's going to be fun. And then how many different quartet programs are you performing at the university itself throughout the academic year? We do two full recitals Okay. at IUSB. This year, we did one recital in the fall, and then we're doing a Euclid and Friends recital in April, which is going to be a lot of fun. That's going to be Schnitke Piano Quintet, Strauss Capriccio Sextet, and Brahms Clarinet Quintet Cool. with some friends of ours. So that's going to be really fun. So you generally have to have at least two full programs for the school year. Do you have other programs that you're working on in the meantime for other projects outside of that? Yeah. So usually we come up with like two full programs per semester that we're working on just to have in our hands, in our repertoire. Right now, we just started working on Britain first string quartet, which I am super, super excited about. Then we also started working on a quartet by Ethel Smythe, which we're going to be doing later in the semester, the five fantasy stück by Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, and you know a few other pieces that we'll be putting together over the course of the semester. And I think with the goal of having recital programs ready to go over the summer. Okay. And how much coaching of chamber music are you doing on a weekly basis then? Not too much, sadly. The IUSB music student body is quite small. Okay. So I personally am actually not coaching any groups this semester. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, but... Well, the school itself is about, what, 5,000 total student body in the whole university? I think a little less than that now, but yeah. Okay. So it's obviously much smaller than the Indiana that we all know. So that means that when you get down to... The music department, what size is the student body in there? Do you have some number there? Off the top of my head, I would say maybe like 70 to 100. Okay. It's it's very small. So you're working on like one full orchestra, basically, size. Yeah, if that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And let's talk then. Your original quartet that you were in before you joined the Euclid Quartet was the Vera Quartet. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how that came about? Were you a founding member or did you join later and what that led to before you joined the Euclid Quartet? Because it seems like you've been heading down this chamber music road. A lot of us dream about that, you know, playing chamber music for a professional career, but it's really challenging and it would be great to hear from you about what that journey has been like and how you've paved the way to continue to get to play so much chamber music. Yeah. So I was indeed a founding member of the Vera Quartet. We were all studying at the same time, doing graduate work at IU Bloomington and had an interest in chamber music. So I formed the quartet with a Spanish couple and they really wanted to start a quartet and like really go for it and try to become a professional quartet. So they were asking around different faculty at IU Bloomington and I was recommended and we kind of hit it off. I think for me, quartet was always kind of a pipe dream where I like to tell people that my most played 
things in my iTunes library in high school were Emerson Quartet's recording of 59-1 and a couple of Radiohead albums. (laughs) (laughs) Quartet has always been something that I've had a really deep interest in, but I always felt like it was that, a pipe dream or unattainable somehow. So seeing this opportunity where there are other people who want to try to really make a go of it, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, we formed and we started doing some competitions within the school, started getting some prizes and all that. And then we were like, oh, this actually could go somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. Then we ended up doing that two-year student fellowship residency at IU and doing some bigger national and then international competitions and did okay. And then ended up doing the residency at Curtis, which was a great time. (laughs) So how long was that residency? Also two years, but it ended in May of 2020, Oh, which you may remember. Okay. <laughs> yes, most of us remember. Yes. <laughs> so that leads into why I left the group, because right as the pandemic was hitting, my two colleagues, the Spanish couple, they decided to move home and leave the group. Oh, so, okay. you know, we were kind of left here thinking about what the quartet could be post-pandemic. Yeah. And wanting to rebuild, but it was such a difficult process to do that. It was really, really slow going, especially because there was so much uncertainty with could we actually get together with people and living in different places and different factors. So eventually, you know, we did start doing some concerts. We started, especially that spring of 2022, we played a few concerts together and it was really great, but it was hard for me to see another year of basically freelancing in the Philly area yeah, and not really having anything stable. So when the job posting came up for the Euclid, I was like, I think I need to apply for this. And at this point, who was playing in the quartet though? Because this was two years after the founding members left. So who was left in the group? What did you do in 22? So before the Spanish couple left, we had started playing with my friend Kate Arndt, mm-hmm. violinist, great, great player and super fun. And so the two of us were kind of putting the thing back together, quote unquote, post COVID. So we started playing with our friend Grace Takeda, who's a violist. And we did some concerts and a couple festivals that summer in 2022 with a rotating cast of violinists. Okay. Which was great and really fun because we got to play with like a bunch of different friends but also contributed to that feeling of, can this become something solid Yeah, at any point? And, you know, that's one of the things that you have to contend with when you go into quartet world, that feeling that it just may never actually coalesce and become something really solid. Yeah. Well, let's talk then a little bit about the residency. So you had a graduate residency with the Vera Quartet at Indiana. Was it the same type of residency that you went to Curtis for, where you were studying as a graduate quartet? Yes. Okay. And then, so that's very different than the residency that you are doing right now, because now you're in a faculty residency, which is obviously a step up and a step forward from what you were doing. Is that correct? Right. Okay. So first off, how does a quartet end up going about getting either of these kinds of residencies? So I'm fairly experienced in applying for the graduate residencies, and that basically entails being together for two, three years, at least, 
and recording some stuff. Usually there's a pre-screening involved. And so, you know, presenting yourself well on a recording and then you go to audition and it's kind of it. Okay. For faculty residencies, they are quite rare. Generally, the quote unquote history of these faculty residencies, generally speaking, they are things that quartets created for themselves. Okay. And were able to, with the school, sort of create positions for themselves. So it's very rare that you see a school posting like a quartet opening. Mm -hmm. I think I've seen one of them in the past few years, and that's at Michigan. It was like an adjunct quartet that they're looking for. Oh, so you mean as far as a school putting out the word that they're interested in bringing a whole quartet in as a faculty Right. Group. That's pretty rare to see. It's happening less and less. I think it was more <laughs> of the standard maybe... 10 to 20 years ago, right. we were seeing more. Or I don't know if you have to go back even further. I wasn't exactly paying attention. Thinking in just purely in terms of numbers, how many big music schools are there in the country that can support having a full-time resident quartet on faculty? Yeah. Most of them already have one. Yeah, so, that's true. So unless something changes there, there's no room for a new one. Exactly. It's a tough situation, especially because there are so many people who want to play quartets and want to make it into a stable living. Yeah. And I guess if you're not going to be on faculty somewhere as a quartet, then the next thing is to really try and drive a full performing career, which is going to put you on the road as much as possible to play as many concerts as you can, mm -hmm. which of course was impossible from 20 to 22, maybe becoming more possible now. But yeah, are those really the only two tracks to building a successful quartet? Those are the two that I think are defined, mm -hmm. as in, like, there are concrete steps that I think are known that you can take. I do think that there is room within the content creation space. I think that there are some quartets who do, quote-unquote, covers of stuff, do, like, video game music, all that kind of stuff, and I don't know if that can truly become a living. But I do think that that's sort of an unexplored space in a lot of ways. Yeah. So yes, I, I do think that those are the two known paths that a quartet can take. But I do think that there is space that we just haven't really defined yet. Yeah, there's still room mm -hmm. to carve out new space. So then what advice would you give to musicians who want to follow the same path that you're on? I think... There's a balance to be had between wanting the quartet or chamber music path so badly versus being realistic about the chances of that happening. A lot of it comes down to quote unquote luck or being in the right place at the right time. And there's only so much that you can control. Of course, the best advice that I can give is just to become the best player that you can and to be prepared for any situation that you walk into. But you have to be realistic and understand that so much of it does come down to, for lack of a better word, luck. Yeah. So finding that balance where you're able to live with that uncertainty <laughs> is, I think, one of the most important things that I could suggest. Yeah. So have you taken an approach where you've really focused on trying to get in a quartet, or have you also found yourself obviously doing teaching. I mean, we all need to teach actually, or all do teach, especially if we like to. And 
also taking orchestra auditions and doing other things to sort of see what doors might open in front of you? Or how have you really focused on this part of your career? So I think it's really important to, again, find a balance between finding opportunities for yourself, but also honoring commitments that you have made. As an example, in 2020, when the quartet was in a very nebulous place with um, two members leaving, I ended up taking an orchestra audition right before the pandemic shut everything down because it felt like the quartet may be no more. Of course, at that point, you got to try to figure out what else you can do. On the other hand, right now, I'm not thinking about taking orchestra auditions at all yeah. because I have made a commitment to this quartet. I've made a commitment to this institution and I'm going to be here for the foreseeable. So I think that there's a balance to be had between always keeping an eye out for opportunities, but you know, making sure that A, those opportunities are in your wheelhouse or things that you are prepared for and making sure that you're taking care of your colleagues and the people that you have made a commitment to. Because I think that that's one of the most important things about chamber music <laughs> and about just connecting with people. When you went to audition for the Euclid Quartet, what did that audition consist of? What was that like compared to taking an orchestra audition? Obviously, they're not the same at all. <laughs> yeah, totally different. So I think probably your listeners know the protocol of orchestra auditions and how everything is very behind a screen, sort of impersonal. And you get up, play something by yourself, and it's very nerve wracking. <laughs> and this could not have been more different. I flew out here for a day and it was full of rehearsing together. I taught a quote unquote lesson with the rest of the quartet watching like a cello lesson. Yeah. And then it was during the summer. So I did a simulation of classroom teaching for like a couple of students that they got together and then had some meetings and more rehearsal. So it was a whole bunch of different activities all over the course of one day and a lot of quartet playing, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Do you know how many people went through that process? Did they tell you or how long that process went on for them? I actually don't. And I'm not that curious to ask. <laughs> <laughs> That's just kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. On January 19th, the Euclid Quartet officially released a new album titled Brev. This album is designed to be played on shuffle. The 11 single movement tracks only have their brevity in common. Spanning three centuries, the pieces include an adagio and fugue by Mozart, a polka by Shostakovich, a tango by Piazzolla, a lullaby by Gershwin, a rag by Bolcom, and much more. What else can you share with us about this project? Yeah, so it's a very fun little project. And when we say that it's designed to be played on shuffle, it absolutely can be played on shuffle. We did think quite a bit about the ordering of it, but given that these are standalone works, each less than 10 minutes, they are shuffleable, if that's a word. <laughs> Yeah, so it's very varied material. And of course, we have things like quartetsats, but Schubert, you know, it's something like very deep and a deep musical statement. Then we have the Shostakovich polka, which is like one of the funniest things I've ever had to play. Mm -hmm. It's just wild variety in this album. And I'm really excited about it. When you went and started recording all of these works or even rehearsing to record these works, I imagine there was a 25 year history of the way that these pieces have been played? Did you find that you had to fit into a tradition that already existed or was there an openness to forging a new path in these particular works? 
That's actually a really interesting question because I've felt a little bit more of the history of the quartet in other repertoire. In this repertoire, I think that there was a lot of openness and a lot of just trying stuff together. And that's not to say that that's not the process in other repertoire, but I think that a lot of the ingrained habits are stronger in other repertoire. Yeah. So in this stuff, we kind of went a little wild sometimes. It was really fun. And this album came out to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the quartet. Is that correct? Yes. And how many hours would you say you spent in the recording studio actually recording? Ooh, that's actually tough to answer. So we did the recording ourselves. Jamie, one of our violinists, has a couple of really nice mics, and we have a hall here at IUSB that's pretty good for recording. So we ended up doing it ourselves. I would say that we booked the hall for like four hours at a time, probably five or six times, something like that. Okay. So you did this in chunks. Yeah. Was it over a longer period of time, like over weeks? Yeah. We recorded some of it in like the fall of 2022, some of it in spring of 23. Yeah. That seems like a good way to go about a project like this with so much varying repertoire. I imagine that was helpful. Yeah. (laughs) So having the benefit of hindsight now and looking back on what you've accomplished so far in your career, what advice would you go back and give to your 18 year old self? Oh boy. (laughs) I got to be careful because I think I would want to make it advice that my 18 year old self would be ready to hear and implement. I think I have two things. One, I would say, try to find a balance between the desire to improve and being okay where you're at, because too far in either direction can lead to really negative things. Mm -hmm. Again, (laughs) at 18, I don't think that I was ready to really find that balance. But I think thinking in those terms is something that I wish that I had tried to do earlier. And I think the other thing would be play video games a little less. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny that you say that because I often think back to my 18-year-old self. And I didn't have a smartphone. I didn't have access to video games, really. I mean, maybe we had Atari. (laughs) Pretty simple. I believe that if I had had a smartphone that had a encyclopedia on it, a movie-making machine, a social media portal, and endless amounts of games, there's no (laughs) way I ever would have become a professional musician. Because there's no way I would have been able to focus the way that I felt like I needed to for really hours of practice every day with that kind of distraction, especially when I look at my life now and how much of a distraction it still can be, all the different things. But playing video games has been really great for some people because you're able to translate that into actually many professions that are coming and have been here using remote robotic type things. If you're skilled at using a video game controller, which has way too many buttons now compared to what it used to have, <laughs> then you can actually be very good at a lot of other things that are required and, and coming down the road, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think I would amend my statement <laughs> and say, play video games consciously. Okay. So I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here. Since 2020, I've become a low-level competitive player in Super Smash Bros. Okay. And I think that there are actually connections to be made between self-improvement 
and improving the discipline of practicing the cello and practicing very specific things, there are connections to be made between that and practicing at Super Smash. Practicing specific scenarios, practicing the literal movement of your thumbs and the tech skill involved in that game. Obviously, there is limited time (laughs) in the day, so it's hard to, I think, be a professional Smash player and be a (laughs) professional cellist at the same time. But I do think that there's a lot of crossover in the way of thinking about improving and thinking about how you train, how you practice. Yeah, how you develop a skill. Exactly. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great time. Thank you so much to Justin Goldsmith for joining us today and sharing his story with us. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. For more information on Justin and any of the links we spoke about today, check out our show notes by scrolling down on the episode. Be sure and catch our next episode where we interview Irish singer, harpist, and violinist Tara McNeil. Tara is a member of the Celtic Woman. We talk about her training that led to this amazing opportunity and what it's like to be a member of this world-famous group touring all over the world. We're here to serve you, so if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like us to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. Don't forget to follow us and rate us on whatever platform you get your podcasts. This helps us climb the rankings so other people can find us. Today's episode was edited by Eric Begay at Red House Productions and produced and recorded by me, Joel Dallow.